And if you are a young Christian, Satan's going to bother you because he wants to try to turn you around. He wants to trouble you in such a way that you'll say, uh-uh, this isn't working. I know what I'm doing over in this other life. But I don't know what's happening in this life. And I don't understand it. So I'm going to go back over here where I understand. And I can do something. And over here, all I can do is pray. Yes. We pray and forgive. We pray and forgive. We pray and forgive. And sometimes that's hard for us. But that's a growing edge for us also. So let's pray. Amen. Father, how we thank you and praise you, O God. That Lord, when it seems like there's nothing else there, and all we can do is hold on to your unchanging hand, that Lord, that we can hang on to you. And I'm so thankful that, Lord, in Scripture that you said this woman touched the hem of your garment. If we don't hang on to no more than just the hem of your garment, we have all that we have need of to heal us, to save us, to keep us. And, Lord, we're in your hands. We're in your hands. And would you, O God, glorify yourself? Would you, O God, build yourself up in us? Would you, O God, reveal yourself more to us? Would you, O God, help us to keep on running and not to grow weary in well-doing? But that, Lord, we know, we know in whom we have believed, and, Lord, we're going to keep on believing against that, O God, that challenges us. And Paul says, yes, he presses on. And when he's pressing, Lord, he's pressing against something that will not sometime let you move freely. But you have to keep on pushing. You have to keep on pressing onward. You have to keep on moving upward. You have to keep on looking upward. You have to fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and let nothing, nothing, nothing in this world cause you to lose sight of him and his glory. For he is the one who will uphold us. He is the one who has carried you from your mother's womb to your gray hair. He is the one who will keep you. And Lord, we thank you for showing yourself great in our lives. For you haven't brought us this far to leave us. And we're going to keep on walking by faith. And we're going to keep on believing in that name that is above every name. And we're going to keep on trusting our God for a great and mighty work yet to be done in our lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, guess what? We all got decisions to make in life. And those decisions sometimes can be rough. They can be difficult. They can be hard. Because decision-making sometimes causes you to make decisions that go against the grain, go against culture. It goes against. 
family. It, it goes against standards of what may have been set by the society or by the world or by government. But it's right in God's sight. It's right in God's sight. And that's where we fall in trouble at. Trying to understand and discern what is right in God's sight. A lot of times we come up with this question, Lord, you really expect me to live that way? You living up here. You ain't living down here where I am. You're dealing with angels. You're not dealing with what I have to deal with. And we come up with all kinds of excuses to not be obedient to the Word of God. We come up with excuses why we won't believe in God or trust God. And everyone in here, you have the choice to believe and trust or not to believe and distrust. You have the choice to receive him or reject him. You have the choice. For the decision is yours. But the consequences are also yours. The consequences are also yours. I remember one day, uh, me and a couple of my friends we were sitting on the back steps of our house many, many, many moons ago. And mom heard us talking about going down stealing some hubcaps off the cars that parked in Goodrich parking lot. Because Goodrich parking lot was right there at the end of Wooster. And um, you could steal those hubcaps, resell them, or take them to the junkyard. But here's a way of getting a little money. Now, mom didn't say, don't do it. Mom didn't call me in the house that you can't go. Mom just said, the consequences will be yours, and if you get caught, don't expect dad or me to come get you. That was enough said. <laughs> it wasn't this your wrong or right, because she already knew that we knew it was wrong. And a lot of us as Christians, the things we do, we already know it's what? Wrong. But we're the one who has to reject or accept that which is right or wrong. You can believe in or you can choose not to believe in. God has given you this mind up here to think and to think it through. He did not give you this mind just to think of evil things. He, just, he didn't give you this mind just to, for you could satisfy yourself or self-pleasures. He gave you this mind that you might be able to think on him and what his will is for your life. And that you might discover that. Everyone 
has to make a decision on what they believe. Even if you choose to believe in nothing, you have made a decision. But understand this. Our decision or your decision doesn't stop God's program. It doesn't stop God's plan. It just means you chose him to step out of it. You chose not to be a part of it. And God has put it in very simple terms. You'll reap what you sow. You'll reap what you sow. Scripture tells us, and we're going to somehow put this with Romans 10, and see a little bit of Paul's transparency. And one thing about being in Christ, he allows you to be transparent. He allows you to reveal yourself. He allows you to know yourself because you only know yourself as God reveals your heart to you. For the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it but God? And unless God shows us our heart, unless God shows us our mind, unless God shows us our intent, unless God reveals us of who we really are, we're at loss. And we really don't know who we are or what we are. Scripture tells us, and Paul says it in Galatians 6.10, he says, do good to all men. Do good to all men. As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are in what? The household of faith, King James. In the NIV it says, therefore, as we have opportunity, as we have that opportunity and that chance and that door that has been opened to us to do good for someone, do good. If you see somebody hungry, feed them. If you see somebody who's not educated, educate them. If you see someone who don't believe, share the truth with them. If you see someone in need, help them according to your ability to assist or to give help. He says now, and here comes the throw in this to those who belong to the family of believers or those who are part of the household of faith. Paul says, do good to those. It doesn't matter if the person be white, black, red, yellow, whatever ethnic group they are in, Paul says, do good to who? All men. But he also puts a division in here, a separation part. Which many of us may understand. If not, I'm going to try to help bring some understanding to it. He said to those, especially 
in the household of faith. That my first obligation in helping and assisting are to those in the family of God. No longer is it my culture, my ethnic group, or whatever I come out of. I am first obligated to help those who are in the family of God and to minister to them. It's almost like a natural thing. Robert, who are you first obligated to? This child or that child over there? Which one? Is it this one? You sure it's that one? You you don't have none over there. That we are first obligated to those in whom we are part of that family. We're obligated. But that does not then divorce us or allow us not to be responsible to others. It is putting a priority that this is first and then to others. When I see on TV sometime, as I saw what happened in Marietta, six police officers handcuffing one African-American male. And in my mind, I'm saying, now what would happen if 50 other black men were to surround that one? But I have to understand, that's the flesh now. Because the issue really boils down to right and wrong. The issue boils down to there's a law of order, the Constitution. The issue says that, boy, if I'm not going to obey that Constitution, then they have every right to force me into obedience. The one who demonstrated that best in our country was King. He would not break the constitutional law because he had to make folks look and see where they themselves were breaking the constitutional law against others. So therefore, he was always about being within the constitutional rights of the individual or the group. Because if you step out of that, then the group has every right to enforce you to do what the law basically says. I like the little scene in The Great Debaters where the young boy is debating against Jim Crow and what's taking place. And he refers at the very end, hopefully, that you would respect my withdrawal rather than the other. Because the only other thing was to retaliate. 
the people here, he says, belong to a family. Then our first responsibility is always to the family of God. And then we have the responsibility of doing what is right to all people. Who or what ethnic group comes first? Each one of us have to make that decision. Are you a Christian first or are you African American first? Are you a Christian first or are you Caucasian first? Are you a Christian first or are you American Indian first? What are you that is first? In Romans 3.23, God puts us all in the same basket when he says all have sinned. All have sinned. And he is speaking to Jews at this time also in Rome. And he allows them to understand, you're in that group. Yes, you are the chosen people, but you're in this group. All have sinned. You have sinned. And you come short of the glory of God. You're in that group. And I imagine some Jews are scratching their heads and said, how can that be if I'm the chosen people? If we're the chosen group. But he's speaking to them. And they're not excluded. But he's also speaking to us that we all have sinned. This is the statement to those who were called chosen by God. And then in Romans 5 eight, he simply said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not for some of us. Not just for the Jews. Not for just this special group over here. But he died for who? For all of us. All of us. He died for each and every one of us. Now, in Romans 1.16, Paul puts a thing in order. And Paul basically says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, but it really is the power of God. But then he says, first to the Jews, because that's where it came first. And Jesus is a Jew, and it comes through the Jewish, unto the Gentile. So he says, first unto the Jew, and then the Gentile. He gives us that order. Have you ever noticed something about Jesus? He never denied that he was what? Jewish. You don't have to deny who and what you are per se, what God has created you to be in order to be a Christian. But once you become a Christian, that becomes secondary. And your Christianity into that family becomes primary and first. Paulson said, I'm not ashamed. And then when Paul's writing to the Romans, he's writing to a troubled church. He's writing to a church that is filled with different ethnic groups, different nations, different kinds of people, all levels of life, wealth, poor, different nationalities, the Greeks. He's writing to the Jews. They're all in that church. And they're having problems. And what Paul wants them to do is to be able to harmonize with each other. 
You ever find how difficult it is for different groups of people to get along? It's very difficult. Because we all first see our own what? Our own culture. All we really know sometimes is our own what? Our own culture. And Paul wanted them to be of one group. Christianity is to bring people from all nationalities, all ethnic groups, into one common cause. Christianity. And to do good to all men. To do good to all men. Now, in Romans 10, I want you to go there with me. Paul, as I said, is going to reveal himself a little bit. He shows us the transparency of himself. And Paul is the one who says, do good unto what? All people. But in doing good to all people does not mean you have to neglect your own group or deny your own group or forsake your own group. There's a young man that when he started off, he was raised not in a black community. He was raised in a part of Princeton that unless he left that area, didn't see another black person. And when he became a pastor in the Alliance, the Alliance just saw him as a black man, and boy, okay, we're going to start another black church, not knowing this man was afraid of black people or ashamed of black people. Arlen did something yesterday. He had everybody laughing. See, a lot of people didn't know Arlen was colorblind. And when Arlen put his glasses on, he looked, I'm black! (laughs) That does scare a lot of people. In Paul's day, Being a Jew in Rome, that could have been scary. That could have been scary. Jews saw themselves as an elite group of people. And for some reason, the rest of the world knew that. If Jews were present. That we're the elite group. We're the chosen of God. And Paul, though he has traveled and he's ministering to Gentiles and others, yet Paul's heart is still with his own people. And there's nothing wrong with that. So pick up with me in Romans 10, verse 1. Listen to Paul. Listen to the the, the transparency that comes from Paul. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my heart's desire, This is something that is deep within me. My heart desires is that Israel would be saved. My heart desire 
is that African Americans would be saved. My heart's desire is that the Caucasian world would be saved. My heart's desire is national Indians would be saved. My heart's desire is for whatever my culture might be, that they would be saved. That they would know Jesus Christ. That they would know him. And Paul says, this is my heart desire. He's revealing something to us of himself. I'm a Jew. And my heart desires that Israel would be saved. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. To desire to see your family saved is not a bad thing. And Paul says, that's my desire. And then he goes on another step. He says, and I pray to God for Israel. Does that mean he's excluding everybody else? No. But that's who he's praying for. When's the last time you prayed for your culture? When's the last time you prayed for African-American young men? We keep talking about the destruction that takes place. But when's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you covered them? When's the last time you did something? If you're in a different cultural group, when's the last time you prayed for that group? Do you understand that during the civil rights movement, when Caucasians start coming over with Dr. King and start marching with him, they start praying that the eyes of their brothers and sisters would be open to the wrong that was being done. And they begin to pray. Why? They were seeing something in themselves and in their own culture that was detestable to them. Something that they did not want to be part of their culture or their society or their character. Because many were being blamed, although many were doing nothing, they were yet being blamed for it. And they began to march with King. They begin to show solidarity. And things begin to change. How many of you know the freedom riders, the majority of them, were young Caucasians, college age? And were beaten and abused for you and I, in a sense. And Paul says, I'm praying... For Israel. Because I want to see Israel saved. I'm praying for African America because I want to see African Americans saved. I'm praying to my God that he'll reach young African American men. That does not exclude Caucasian men. Yes, they're in there. Indians are in there. Whole groups of ethnic groups are in there. And he goes on and he says... I'm praying for them. Now go down to verse 12 with me because we're going to go to 12 and then we're going to jump back up into this. But I want you to see part of Paul's conclusion here also. Paul says simply, there is no difference. 
There is no difference between ethnic groups, between nationalities. There is none. It's just on the outside. If I needed a heart because of a Caucasian or an Indian or a Japanese says, here's my heart, you think I'm going to refuse it? Because on the inside, we're all what? The same. And that's one of the lessons we're still learning. That we're, we're the same. It's a difficult lesson for us. But we're learning it. And Paul says, there's no difference. While you're looking in the church of Rome and you see that Greek guy over there and you see that Polish guy over there and you see that uh, barbaric guy over there and you see this Roman over here. He said, there's no difference. There's no difference. Well, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. That includes all the other nationalities. There's no difference. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. One Lord. One Lord. Sometimes we are talking more about our indifferences rather than our what? Than that which is most important to us as a whole. Now, in Romans 1, Paul says, Boy, my heart desire and my prayers to God is that Israel will be saved. And Paul says, I can testify about them. Why? I can tell you about them. Why? Why can Paul do that? Why can Paul articulate about this Jewish person? Why can Paul articulate and testify about being Jewish? Why can I articulate sometime to a Caucasian person about African American? That's where I am. That's where I live. That's where I grew up in. That's what I do. That's how I speak. That's what I ran around with. But a Caucasian person can articulate to me about their culture and their things and things that they were involved in. I've had white friends that have articulated to me how their grandfather and fathers felt but then have told me the change in their own heart towards me or towards this group. You do the same thing with African Americans. They can articulate how hateful one would be. What happened if we would have followed a Stokey Carmichael? What would have happened if we would have followed a Cleveland? What would have happened if we would have followed a Rap Brown or Angela Davis? All of them saw one thing, hate. Martin Luther King only saw one thing, love. You have to choose who you're going to follow. You have to choose who you're going to listen to and who you're going to hear. You have to choose. Because what goes in here will cause you to think and how you think will dictate how you will act. You have to choose. 
And Paul says, I know about the Jews. Why do I know about the Jews? Because I was a Pharisee. I, I am a Jew. I know my folks. I know my people. I can testify about them. I've lived it. I've been there. And Paul says, I can tell you about them, for I can testify about them that they are zealous. See, they had an enthusiastic character about the things of the law. They were enthused about their religion. I'm going to hit home a little bit here. Sometimes we're so enthused, we have so much emotion in the church, and we think we are really in Christ by the way we jump, shout, and yell. Now, part of that has been by another culture who says just because we can sing spiritual songs or sing the gospel, we really are religious. A lot of us are playing that same thing on Saturday night and then come to church on Sunday and think we're doing it. No, it don't work. And in our churches, we have a lot of zeal sometimes for the name of Jesus. Now catch me here. Paul says it's not based on knowledge. It's not based on the scripture. It's not understood through the scriptures. That we have all this zeal. We have all this hoopla. We have all this excitement. But if I was to ask you to tell me where was the book of Job, would you know? Ask you to turn to Matthew, would you know? Most of us know John 3.16 because mama and grandma all have been told about it. But if I ask you to start telling me about Scripture, how would you explain it? If I start telling you about how you were saved and how Christ called, how would you explain it? See, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism only is an act that shows, hey, I have surrendered to Christ, died to self, I've come up out of the grave, and now I'm living for Christ. It doesn't save us. And Paul says, I can testify of their zeal, of their zealousness. I was one of them. I persecuted the Christians because of my zealousness. Not because of my knowledge per se, but my zealousness. And he goes on and he says, Boy, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since then, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Understand something here. Paul was one of them. And when Paul says he was a Pharisee of a Pharisee, 
Paul knew the law and followed the law. He understood that the zeal was not after knowledge. And Paul then recognizes without knowledge, stay with me, listening to me, without knowledge, you will establish your own law and your own righteousness. You will make whatever seems right to you the law. You'll call what is right for you righteous. Man will always set his own rules of righteousness and law. Not according to scripture. Let me give you an example. Show me anywhere in scripture where God calls marriage 50-50. There is none. But we made that a law to ourselves. She got to bring in 50% and I got to bring in 50%. And when I'm going through marriage or counseling, men hate what I say. She can take all her money and throw it out the window. Based on this principle. He is responsible for you, the wife. When a man tells his wife, you got to go to work, something's wrong with that. Now there's a difference between him saying to her, you got to go to work, or she chooses to go to work. In 50-something years, I've never told Elaine, you have to go to work. Oh, she's challenged that sometimes. If I don't work, then what will we? We'll still survive. See? That means we may have one car rather than two cars. See? See? One time, boy, we were going through it with that. And I was in an apprenticeship, and I went out and mate with the guys. And I didn't throw my little chicken box out the car before I got home. And she found the chicken box and she thought, you want us to eat beans while you eating chicken. (laughs) (laughs) But that man is totally responsible. 100%. Now we got women taking care of men. And we wonder why men's minds are messed up. And we write our own rules. We write our own rules in relationship. Oh, uh, you're my sweetheart, but I got a girlfriend over here, but you're my sweetheart, but she's just somebody I hang out with. We write our own rules. We write our own rules about our finances. It's okay for me not to pay Peter, because I'm going to take from Paul and spend that and not pay. So we write our rules about our own finances. Well, I'm going to first take care of me. I'm going to party on Friday night. I'm going to buy me what I want first, then I'll pay my bills. But you don't realize you have did a promissory note saying you would pay this every month, this full thing. That's your word. You want to keep that. But it comes back, I got what I want now. So we live by our own rules. And we suffer the consequences of it. 
Because when man will not submit to the righteousness of God, he will write his own rules about everything. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They wrote a lot of laws that had nothing to do with the Ten Commandments or the commandments of God, they wrote their own laws to establish their own righteousness and we write our own rules and we have our own rules to establish our own righteousness. And it won't work. He says, since then, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and sought to establish their own. They sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Now you had to know something in order to what? Submit it. If you knew nothing of it, you couldn't submit. But you knew something of it and you chose not to submit. And a lot of us know God's word, but we choose not to submit to it. We choose not to obey it. We choose that. A young man, 29 years old, sitting in my office. I grew up in the church. I've been in the church all my life. My question was this. Do you have any children? I have nine children. You got nine children. You're not married. Haven't been married. Where did nine children come from? Don't laugh. That could happen to you. <laughs> See? Mom, don't beat him down yet. Do it at home. <laughs> but he grew up in the church. Well, if he grew up in the church and you got nine children out here, what were you learning in church? Or what you were learning in church, you didn't believe it. You didn't receive it. You didn't accept it. And you wrote your own rules. And you followed your own rules. And you wonder why you have nothing today. You got nine children not married, you're not going to have anything. But he was going to live by his own rules. That he made up for himself. But yet you grew up in the church. Israel grew up in Israel. But yet was not willing to submit to the righteousness of God. And they were going to establish their own. And that whole process, man refuses to submit to God's righteousness. How many of you here today are sitting fighting with God? Because you will not surrender to his word, to him. And yet there has to be some type of guidance in your mind of what you think is either right or wrong. And do you check it against the word of God? Or do you go ahead and lean on your own understanding in which God has told us not to do? We will formulate our own rules. Then from verses 4 through 7, he, he tells us this. Christ is the end of the law, and he is. Why? 
In Matthew 5, 17, he, tell, he came to fulfill the law. Only in Him do I fulfill the law. Only in Him can I perform the law. Only through Christ. Because man in himself is weak. You make your own constitutions. You make your own rules. How many of you make them rules every first of the year and don't live out any of them? Yeah. We do it. But when you make a rule to yourself, you're going to live by that and die by it. In our homes sometimes, especially as fathers and even mothers, and I asked this one mother this, because the child asked me first, and the question was, why is my mom pregnant and she's not married? How am I supposed to answer that? And then the next statement was this. If I go out here and get pregnant, I'm going to catch. Now, the rule you have for the child, shouldn't it also be the rule you have for who? I had that same rule with my kids. I'm going to be home by a certain time. Now, I'm grown too. But I got a wife I got to answer to. I, I just never said that. Yeah. 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 But I couldn't come strolling in no house no two, three in the morning. Why? Because of her. Yeah. Yeah. And likewise, she wasn't going to do that either. And our kids needed to see that. And therefore, when we told them they need to be home by a certain time, they understood. Because it also applied to me. Don't you love it when kids say, I'm going to be so glad when I get grown, I can do anything I want to do. Then they get grown, you tell them, get out. and they don't understand they can't do anything they want to do the law is in Christ Jesus he fulfilled the law for me and the law points me to him for the law was that schoolmaster that showed me I was nothing but a failure but in Christ Jesus I had success and I had victory And he goes on from there. He says, simply, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for who? Everyone who believes. My righteousness is established in who? In a person called Jesus. Not me trying to establish my own righteousness, my own rules, my own guidelines. They're already set in a person called Jesus. And he moves on and he says, Moses described in this way, the righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by them. You have to live by what you say is your law. 
You have to live by it. And you will die by it. And if you live by your law and you live by what you say are your guidelines, you will die by them and you definitely will not go to heaven by them. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith, and that faith has to be in an object, in something. That faith in Jesus Christ, who is my righteousness. If I put my faith in him, I will live. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven and bring Christ down. Why? Christ's already been incarnated. I can't do it again. I can't go up and bring him down. I can't redo what Christ has already done. It's done. I can't go down and raise him up. Why? He's already been resurrected. I can't change what's already been done. We can't change it. His work is complete. The law you make for yourself, you will live by and you will die by. And no dish, your law can't save you. And in verse 8, then he says, the word is near you. The word is near you. You're hearing the word of God. You're hearing the word of God. Jump over to verse 17 with me real quick. And we begin to wrap this up. Listen to what he says. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. What's the message? The word of God. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. They heard it, but they didn't respond to it. Now understand this. It's God's responsibility to get the word to you. It's your responsibility to accept or reject. It was my responsibility to ask Elaine to marry me. Her responsibility is to say yes or to say no. It's my responsibility to show up for an interview, but it's the other person's job on the other side of the desk to either say You have the job or you don't have a job. There's the responsibility that we have, and oftentimes we negate our responsibility because we are hearers of the word, but what James says, we're not doers of the word. You got the job, but you don't want to get up. You got the job, but you only want to work three days a week rather than five days a week. You got the job, you want to get paid on Monday, but payday is not until Friday. He says, the word is near you. You've heard the word. The question is now, what are you doing with it? Don't look at the other person. Don't look at your husband. Don't, don't look at your neighbor. The question is, what are you doing with the word of God. What are you doing with it? 
And he says, the word is near your mouth. The psalmist says, taste and see how good the Lord is. Taste and see how good the Lord is. Now, verses 9 and 10. 10 is a repeat of verse 9. If you check a lot of commentaries, they don't even talk about verse 10. They jump over it. Because 10 is a repeat of verse 9. Being said in a different way, in a sense. But both verses are important for us. And we need to hear both verses. Because this is going to also bring us down to our decision making. Our receiving or our rejecting. It's what you decide to do with it. And he tells us in that verse 9, he says, that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. Now understand something about confession. It's a change of mind. It's a repentance. You've turned. And you've stated what you have now turned to. You have turned from something to something. You've changed your mind about something. And now you are confessing it. And you're sharing it. That, yes, I've changed my mind. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 5.16. I I think Paul here brings this out about himself very well. Again, and, and what we need to hear him say here is that, boy, there was a change of mind. There was a change of mind about this Christ and his teaching. Uh, there was a change of mind here that took place. So in 5.16, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way. What is he saying? I once saw Jesus Christ just as a man. And I saw Jesus Christ as one of these individuals who rebelled against Judaism. And he was a Jew. And he's rebelling against Judaism. He's rebelling against everything he grew up with. He is rebelling against something that is over thousands of years old. He's rebelling and he's trying to cause anarchy among our people. And he's calling people to follow him. And Paul persecutes everything about Jesus Christ, his church. And he says, I only once saw Jesus as a man. That's like me seeing a white person only as a white person, or a white person only seeing me as a what? As a black man. Until we get to know each other, we don't what? We don't really know each other. And that's the thing about people we have to get to know. If I see somebody who can't read, I can talk about how ignorant they are, how dumb they are, how this and how that, but until I get to know that person, that person may have a deep desire to know how to read. They may have a deep desire to know how to write their name. They want more than what they have at that present time, but somebody got to be willing to offer it to them and give them more. And Paul says, I once considered him only as a man, but he says, we do this no longer. What changed his mind? 
What changed his view about Christ? Why is it that Christ isn't seen the way he first was saw by Paul and others? And Paul, because he repented of that, he confessed it, and he says who Christ really is, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. And over there again, he says, boy, in that night, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Well, over in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it simply tells us, no one can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 tells us that none of us belong to him unless the Spirit dwells where? In us. And if the Spirit dwells in us, we're able to confess that Jesus is Lord because we've had a change of mind. We have turned from how we once saw him to how we now do see him, that he really is Lord. And we've changed our mind about one who we just at one time just saw as a man. Just think of a Muslim who sees Jesus Christ only as a great prophet, one of the great prophets. But then the Holy Spirit convicts him, and now he sees Jesus Christ as God and as Lord of his life, as Savior. There's been a change of mind. There's been a change of thought. There's been a change how he sees him. And he says, boy, then you confess it and you declare that. That you no longer see him that way. But this is how you see him. And he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, the innermost part of your heart. Why? Because out of the heart flows what? The issues of life. Out of the heart flows those very deep, close, intimate things to a person. Out of the heart, a man should speak. A woman should speak. Out of the heart flows the real issues of life. Out of the heart flows where you really stand. Out of the heart flows what you really mean and where you're going to die for and you're going to be willing to Stand there and hold to this. Those issues of life flow out of the heart. And he says to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Because if Jesus be not raised, as Paul says, then we are a people most what? Miserable. Miserable. And verse 10 then is like a your Repeating verse 9 in a sense. In a different way, he says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your heart you believe and you are justified. It's with your heart. How many of you have moved from seeing Jesus just here and Jesus is down here dealing with the real issues of your life? When he deals with the issues with your life here, they'll make you think about it up here. But he deals with them here first. 
allows them to go upward. That you give thought to them here and search them out. And he says you have to believe first in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Then I ask the question, is that reasonable? Can that happen? That hasn't happened to anybody else. I haven't seen anybody else do that. And then we begin to search it out. And he goes a little further and he says, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that confessions are made unto salvation. Listen to what Paul says again in Romans 1.16. Then you ask yourself this question. Is this you? Or is it you? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are you ashamed of it? That it won't come out your mouth? Are you ashamed of what Jesus has done for you? Are you ashamed of the name of Jesus? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Understand this thing about us as human beings. What I'm not ashamed of, I talk. <laughs> Let somebody give you a million dollars. You would tell the world. What I'm not ashamed of, I talk. I'm not ashamed of her. I let the world know and everybody know. This is my wife. These are my children. Why? I'm not ashamed of them. What you possess that you are really owner of, you're not ashamed of it. I may have a shack. I may not have a five-bedroom house with three bathrooms, but I got a one-bedroom house with one bathroom, but it's mine. I'm not ashamed of it. I worked hard for it. When we're not ashamed of something, we tell others. We tell others. And in telling others, I'm making my confession about my Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not ashamed of what he's done for me. And he says, I make that confession known. See, sometimes, how many have heard the word secret Christians? There is no such thing. And he simply says, boy, with your mouth, you confess and are saved. And then verse 11, as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to what? Shame. If you trust in God, you'll never be put to shame. Understand this. God wants to show you off. If you're really his and you're not ashamed of him, he wants to show you off. He's going to dress you up. He's going to put you in places you never thought that you would be. And you will not be ashamed. 
Because you know that you're only there by the power of God. He says, when you believe in him, you'll never be put to shame. I may not have doctor degrees and this kind of degrees or that kind of degree. But God makes it where you can talk to any man. Any person. And feel no shame. God raised him up from the dead and you will not be shameful to tell others about it. And when you speak what you know, understand this principle again. When you speak what you know, when you know, when you know that you are saved. In John 8.32 it says, the truth will set you what? And when you're free, we run our mouths. When we're free from demonic oppression, when we're free from struggling with that issue, if he is or if he isn't, if we're free from really understanding I'm saved or not saved, when we're free, I share. I talk. Because I know what he's done for me. That's all a witness is is telling people what God has done in your life. Anyone who trusts him will never be put to shame, whether you are Jew or Gentile. And that's what Paul wanted this church to know. It's not about you being a Gentile. not about you being Greek. It's not about you being a Roman. It's not about you being Jewish. It's not about you being there. The question is this, are you in Christ? Do you know Christ? Are you living by the righteousness of Christ? Have you been saved by the blood of Christ? Have you believed on Christ? And he winds up in saying, we serve one Lord. Whether I be Greek, Roman, whether I be white, black, red, yellow, don't matter what I am. If I'm saved, we serve but one Lord. That's my sister. That's my sister. Pop peeve here and then I'm done. When I was growing up as a child, this would not just be Cynthia. This would be Sister Cynthia. It would always remind me when one family, she's not my wife, but she's my what? Sister in the Lord. She's my relative. And that's how I looked upon her, as my sister. And we would call each other sister and brother because it reminded us we were in one family. It allowed us to know We're in one family. This is my sister. And I treat her as I would treat who? My sister. And she would treat me as she would treat her brother. She's not my date. I'm not her date. I'm her brother. She's my sister. 
That had meaning back in the day when we called each other brother and sister. And it comes from a biblical way of thinking and seeing each other. If you're here, it's up to you. Some of you will walk out the same way you came in. But I hope that you would walk out with a different mindset. I hope you would walk out seeing Jesus differently. I hope you would walk out even like Paul. I'm going to pray for an African-American community, young men, young women. I'm going to pray for the whole world. I'm going to pray for my Jerusalem, my Judea, my Samaria, my uttermost parts of the world. And I'm going to do good to all people because of who they are in Christ to me. And that understanding this most important issue. You cannot be saved on your own. You may have accepted Jesus Christ. My question to you is this. Are you living for Christ? Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your loving kindness unto us. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. And that your word, Lord, is truth. That, Lord, if we believe in our hearts and if we confess the Lord Jesus, we shall be saved. We believe you, Lord, that you came and died for each and every one of us. We believe you, Lord, that you died while I was yet in my sin. You died for me demonstrating your great love for me. And Lord, all I have to do is say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I repent of my sins. Would you save me to the uttermost? Because you're the only one who can. And Lord, would you do a work that would show the evidence that I am truly saved because you said in your word Lord if any man be in Christ he is a new creature the old things will pass away and behold all things will become new Lord would you demonstrate that in my life and Lord you said oh God that if I would believe in you you would give me your gift of your Holy Spirit to dwell in me. Would you allow me to know, oh God, not just to read about the Holy Spirit and not to have an experience that causes me to jump, shout, and do all this other stuff, but an inward experience with your Holy Spirit that I might know, oh God, that it is the Spirit of God touching my spirit and ministry 
to me? Would you do it, O Lord? That we would not be a people just filled with zealousness, but we are a people who are responding to knowledge, not to our feelings, but to the facts that have taken place in our lives. You're the only one who can make yourself real to each and every one of us. I can't make you real to a person in this room. You're the only one who can reveal yourself to each one of us. And I pray, Father, that you would do it. That we might be able to say, as Paul said, I know in whom I have believed. I know. I know. I know. Father, thank you. And if you're here, and if you want to come up, would you come? Oh, that's a step of faith. Oh, yes, people are going to look at you, stare at you, and do whatever. But if Jesus has spoken to you, would you just come? 